Chapter 12 Iniala This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ideala Bathera Grand Chapter 12 A little while after that evening at the palace, we learnt to our dismay that Ideala's husband had taken a house in one of the rough manufacturing districts, to which he meant to remove immediately. Business was the pretext, as he had money in some great ironworks there, but I think the nearness of a large city where a man of his stamp would be able to indulge all his tastes without let or hindrance had something to do with the change. Ideala had kept up very well while she was among us, but soon after she went away, we gathered from the tone of her letters that there was a change to her which alarmed us. Her health, which had hitherto been splendid, seemed to be giving way, and it was evident that her new position did not please her, and that even after she had been there for months, she continued to feel herself a stranger in a strange land. The people were uncongenial, and I think it likely they regarded Ideala's oddities with some suspicion, and did not take her as we had done. She had not that extreme youth, which had been her excuse when she came to us, and which somehow we had not missed when she lost it, and her habitual reserve on all matters that immediately concerned herself must also have tended to make her unpopular with the people whose predominant quality was an eminent curiosity. They are far above books, Ideala wrote to Claudia. What they study is each other, and in the pursuit of this branch of knowledge they are indefatigable. When they can get nothing out of me about myself, they question me about my husband and friends, and it is in vain that I answer them with those words of wisdom. I feel sure I misquote them. All that is mine own is yours till the end of my life, but the secret of my friend is not mine own. They persevere. Our house is near the town. Eighteen big chimneys darken our daylight and deluge us with smuts when the wind brings the smoke our way, and besides the smoke, we are subject to unsavoury vapours from chemical works in the other direction, so that when the wind shifts, we only exchange evils. They say these chemical fumes are not unwholesome, and quote the death rate, which is lower than any other place of the size in England. In fact, scarcely anybody dies here. They go away as soon as they begin to feel ill. Perhaps that accounts for it. But those horrid chemical fumes have a great deal to answer for. They have killed the trees for miles around. It is the oaks that suffer principally. The tops are nipped first, and then they gradually die downward till the whole tree is decayed all through. The absence of trees makes the country bleak and desolate, and I cannot help thinking the unlovely surroundings affect us all. The people themselves are unlovely in thought and word and deed, 
but I have found a good deal of rough kindliness amongst them nevertheless. They did mob me on one occasion and made most unkind remarks about my nether garments when I was obliged to walk through the town in my riding habit. But as a rule, the mill girls merely observed, That's a lady, and let me go by unmolested, unless I happen to be carrying flowers. They do so love flowers, poor things, and I cannot resist their pathetic entreaties when they beg, for one missus only one some of my lady friends are not let off so easily as i am the girls chaff them unmercifully about their dress and personal peculiarities and if they show signs of annoyance they call them names that are not to be repeated the mill girls wear bright coloured gowns white aprons and nothing on their heads if a policeman catches them at any mischief they either clatter off in their clogs with shrieks of laughter or knock him down and kick him most unmercifully they are as strong as men and as beautiful some of them as saints but they are very unsaint-like creatures really irresponsible and with little or no idea of right and wrong one scarcely believes that they have souls and i am always surprised to find that anything not cruel and coarse can survive in the hearts of people begrimed body and mind like these but their hard surroundings but it is there nevertheless but human nature and the poetry and the something ready to thrill to better things a gentleman has a lovely place not far from us where the trees have been spared by a miracle nightingales seldom wander so far north but a few years ago a stray one was heard there and the wonder of the beauty of its voice brought hundreds from the mills and crowded streets to hear it sing special trains were run from the neighbouring city to accommodate the crowds that came nightly to wait in the moonlight and listen and an enterprising trader set up a store and sold ginger beer the story ends there but i like it don't you the ginger beer part of it it was told me by one who remembers the circumstance my greatest pleasure in life is in my flowers they are dearer to me than any i ever had before because they are all so delicate and require such infinite care and tenderness to keep them alive in this uncongenial climate i have my thrushes also too which i stole from a nest in a wood one moonlight night and brought up a hand on bread and milk and scraped beef i had to get up at daylight and feed them at every hour until dark but the clergy will not allow that this obligation was a proper excuse for staying away from church and just now i am unhappy in the feeling that their religion must be inhuman but my thrushes have well repaid the trouble they call me when i go into the room and come to me when i open the door of their cage and perch on my shoulder one of them israfil sings divinely people who come to hear him only see a little brown bird with speckled breast and call him a thrush but i know he is israfil the angel of song and most melodious of god's creatures 
and he thinks that I have wings. He told me so. I wish you would send me a basket of snails packed up in lettuce leaves. I don't know why, but I can find none here, and I cannot hear of one ever having been seen in the county. But please do not send them unless you are quite sure you can spare them. Idiola is trying to hide herself behind these pretty trivialities, Claudia said. I always suspect that there is something more wrong than usual when she adopts this playful tone and childlike simplicity of taste. It must be trying to have a friend who believes so little in one as you do in Idiola, I answered. Oh, how exasperating you are, Claudia exclaimed. You know what I mean quite well enough. Later, Idiola wrote, You are anxious about my health. The fact is, I have developed a most extraordinary talent for taking cold. I went by train to see the museum in the city the other day. I took off my cloak while I was there and stayed an hour. And when I came away, the antiquary, who knew I was a precious specimen, wrapped me up carefully himself. Nevertheless, I caught cold. Then I went to stay with some people near here, who clamoured much for the pleasure of my company. They live in a palace and are entertaining. The lady's papa took me into dinner the first evening. He asked me about Major Gorst and wanted to know, in an impressive tone of voice, if I had heard that he was the next heir but one to the earldom of Cathcourt. The next day my hostess said to her husband, Dearest, do let me ride Oscar. And he replied, No, my darling, I can't till I know he's safe. I must get someone to try him first. And he looked at me. Perhaps you wouldn't mind. They had never seen me on horseback, and I was longing to distinguish myself. I did distinguish myself. Oscar was a merry horse but one never knew how he would take things. The first bridge we came to, I was sitting easy to a canter with my foot out of the stirrup and my leg over the third crutch, a bad habit I learned from a foreign friend, and an express train rushed by. Oscar went on abruptly, but I remained. The next difficulty was at a brook. We ought to have crossed it together but Oscar changed his mind at the last moment, so he remained and I went on, and after that we came to crossroads and had a difference of opinion about which was the right one. That ended in our coming over together, which made me feel solemn, disheartened in fact, and then I thought we should never understand each other and be friends. So I gave him up. I did not talk much about riding to those people after that, but I wore my summer habit that day, and of course I caught cold, and when that was nearly well, I went downstairs to be civil to some people who had driven a long way to see me. The drawing-room was damp from disuse, and the fire had only just been lighted, and of course I caught cold. When that was better, I went for a drive. The wind was east, and the carriage was open, and of course I caught cold. I don't know how it may strike you, but argument seems to me useless when a person has such a constitution. Can you read between the lines of that letter, Claudia asked me. 
She seems to be dreadfully... Don't care, I said. Exactly. She is more reckless and therefore more miserable than she used to be. I wouldn't live with him. Idiana won't shirk her duty because it is hard and unpalatable, I answered. I believe she likes it, Claudia exclaimed. And then, smiling at her own inconsistency, she explained, I mean, if she really is miserable, she ought to speak and let us do something. It is contrary to her principles. She would think it wrong to disturb your mind for a moment because her own life is a burden to her. That is why she always tries to seem happy and is cheerful on the surface. If she made lament, we should suffer in sympathy, and all the more because there is so very little we could do to help her. Silence is best. If she ever gives way, she will not be able to bear it again. But why should she bear it? Claudia demanded. It is her duty. I know she thinks so, and is sacrificing her life to that principle. But will you kindly tell me where a woman's duty to her husband ends and her duty to herself begins? I suppose you will allow that she has a duty to herself, and the line should be drawn somewhere. Claudia's mind was a sort of boomerang just then, returning inevitably to this point of departure, but I could make no suggestion that satisfied her, and I was uneasy myself. Idiala refused to come to us, and had made some excuse to prevent it when Claudia offered to go to her. This puzzled me, but we induced her at last to promise to meet us in London in May. It was April then, and we thought if she could be persuaded to stay two months of the season in town with us and go with us afterward to a place of mine in the north, which she loved, she would probably recover her health and spirits. End of chapter 12 Read by Voiceover Mom from Auckland, New Zealand, June 2021.